on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. Time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop arcs, and exhaust. Time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. Hi, I'm Dave Baronic, call sign bio. I was an F-14 Rio and a Top Gun instructor and one of your hosts for the F-14 Tomcast. Our audience is probably aware that the Navy had a less than desired showing in air-to-air combat in the early years of Vietnam. One of the most significant responses was known as the ALT Committee, which studied the situation, issued a comprehensive report that improved virtually every aspect of Navy fighter aviation, from handling missiles to training air crews. One thing that the report did that a lot of people are aware of is it launched Top Gun, but it also served to institute a robust force of adversary squadrons. In the 1970s and 1980s, there were active duty and reserve adversary squadrons at Miramar and Oceana, as well as many other naval air stations. All right, and I'm Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch, and I'm also one of your co-hosts here on the F-14 TomCast. Now, today we're joined by a good friend of mine and my neighbor from across the street, Bob Brower, call sign BB. He was an F-14 pilot uh, and Top Gun graduate from back in the day, and oh, by the way, an adversary pilot in VF-43 for about three years, I think it was. Three years. Awesome. So, BB, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Awesome. So we always like to start off with a little conversation with our guests, basically set the framework for the audience, um, whether they're on YouTube or audio only. Where are you from? How'd you get into naval aviation? How'd you get into Tomcats? Basically the thumbnail sketch. Okay. Quick and dirty. Um, Grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. No military background, but I wanted to fly from when I was a kid. My, uh, my dad was a TWA mechanic, so I was around airplanes a, a lot growing up. Um, went to the Naval Academy, graduated in 1978, um, spent a, a short summer after graduation as a sailing coach, offshore sailing, and then went to flight school in September of uh, 1978. Got my wings in 1980 and uh, went to my first fleet tour. So I spent some time uh, at VF-11 as a junior officer, got the opportunity to go to Top Gun during that tour, uh, followed up by a shore tour as a VF-43 adversary pilot. Uh, we flew uh, A-4s and Kafirs primarily while I was there. Um, another fleet tour in F-14s again at VF-11. It's two times in VF-11. Two-time two ripper. Yeah, two-time ripper. All right. And then uh, a short tour as uh, the OPSO of Fighter Wing 1 at Oceana, Um, a little short trip to Bahrain for a a few months, and about 11 months in D.C., my only desk job, really, in the Navy as the uh, F-14 class desk um, up in Crystal City at the time, screen for command right after I got there and came right back to Oceana, XOCO of the F-41, and then many boss on the John C. Stennis um, and wrapped up there. Awesome. Awesome. So that's a, that's a, 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 I like that thumbnail. And just for the, for the audience, just, this is kind of a, a a quirk of fate. So we're next door neighbors, right? right? We've been next door neighbors for over 20 years. Right. I think somewhere around there, somewhere around 20 years have been in this house, right? Um, You and I first met, I was Lieutenant JG Snyder when you were 
XO of VF41. Right. And I had just gotten winged, come to NAS Oceana, and I was supposed to go to Tomcats. Didn't have uh, a, a class date. I was just sitting there cooling my jets until they got started. So they said, hey, you need to kill six months. So you're going to go over to VF41. So I went over to VF41. And I remember sitting in your office. There I was, Lieutenant J.G. Snyder. And I'm like, what's this old guy yeah. going to tell me? I, I'm ready. I got my cup of coffee. Got my <laughs> I got yeah. my wings. I got my wings. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had a good time. So that's yeah. when we first met. Long, that was almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Almost 30 years ago. Holy cow. That, that, yeah, is that, in, that is incredible. I mean, that is just incredible. You guys met at that in that situation and now you're neighbors and have been neighbors for a while. Man, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? So BB and I were just refreshing before we started, and and uh, we met each other in uh, 1984. When uh, you that's BB, that's when you came through Top Gun as a, as an adversary student. No, right? I, that that was the uh, power projection, the fighter course. Okay, I so came when you through came, later, right. uh, I got another opportunity to go through the uh, the adversary course. And when he came through, I was a, a brand new Top Gun instructor and still figuring things out. But but Crunch, I was probably also like, hey, I'm a Top Gun instructor, you know. <laughs> but I had a I had a lot I had a lot to learn, believe me. As you know, you know, we could do a whole episode on uh, change of attitude through time as you go through your career. <laughs> Matter of fact, let's bookmark that one because I think we all have some thoughts on that one. So so yeah. Bio, let me ask: When did you start giving your lecture at Top Gun? Do you remember? I gave uh, the F-14 combat intercepts. Uh, my murder board was in uh, January 1985. Yeah. Because I, I remember- You were working on it when I was there. I, I don't remember exactly, but- Oh, I, yes, I was. And I remember uh, very well leaving a uh, VF-24, my first squadron, leaving a Christmas party to go do a murder board on a Friday night at 10 p.m. <laughs> And, and as I, and, you know, Sunshine, I don't know if you guys know Sunshine, but he, I think he was uh, checking my commitment because when he told <laughs> yeah, me, your he goes, Hey, I'm busy. I'm doing a lot of stuff. The only time I have is Friday night at 10. And I go, all right. I mean, right imagine after the squadron party. Yeah. Imagine if I had said, Oh, I'm going to a squadron party that night. He'd go, I would have got dressed down, you know? Okay. Anyway, <laughs> you know, something else I think, and we're going to get into this. I think people are going to like the fact that you flew the Kefir because that that jet just fascinates a lot of people. And we'll get to that. Yeah, it's a fun airplane. Yeah, I'll bet. Man, you had some great experiences. So uh, so when when did you uh, start your adversary experience? What year and, uh, and how much uh, flight time did you have when you started as an adversary pilot? About, um, you know, approximately. Uh, I probably had 1,500 hours of, of flight time at, uh, when I started, maybe a little more. Um, and then in the adversary tour, I just happened to hit VF-43 right when we were getting kafirs. I was the second or third group of guys that went to Israel to learn to fly that airplane. Um, it was it was kind of an interesting program in that we had no two-seat Kafirs. There were 12 of them. They all belonged to VF-43. They were all single-seat airplanes. So um, I got there in uh, 1985, in the in the fall of 85, and flew until 88, a, a full three years on shore duty. Got a little extension there because the, uh, yeah, it was a great deal at the time. Kafir was only at VF-43 for three years. 
And uh, then we gave them away to the Marines, VMFAT-401 out at Yuma, took those airplanes. So I got extended on uh, shore duty to continue to fly them because we were out of crews for them uh, in, the, in the last months. And I got about 500 hours in the Kafir and uh, about 600 hours in the A4 during that three-year tour. So, you know, as, as the audience may know, that doesn't sound like a lot of flight hours, but a lot of those were probably uh, 0.9s or something like that. You yeah, know? I, I pulled out my logbook and took a look. 0.7 to 0.9 in the Kafir was a standard hop. There, You know, you'd fly twice a day often, occasionally three times a day, but you weren't getting a lot of flight time. It was yeah, short. Not like, not like Tomcats on deployment. Back then, it was always 2.1, 2.2. That's right. And, Okay. Did you say you have a picture of a kefir there? Can yeah, you show me? Uh, I think it's, a lot it's of a people pretty, probably uh, know it is. Pretty sleek airplane, kind of. Oh, there you go. And fast looking, if you can see that. That's it's one the, of the. Uh, there yep, you go. The Mirage Three with the J seventy nine in it. Exactly. It was uh, when you when you're learning to fly it. It's a hodgepodge of um, French terminology. Um, Hebrew writing on the instruments and American engine technology. Um, everything's in liters and kilograms, and it's uh, it's just numbers, though. Bio, that's all it is, just numbers. It was it was the altimeter at least in feet? Yes, <laughs> but we were in meters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now, did you uh, correct me if I'm wrong? I think you went over to Israel at some point for some training. Right? right. Is that right? Yes. What, talk us through that. Was that to get Qualified to, yeah, to get so so here's how that worked. They sent um, really top notch folks over to teach us ground school. So all of our ground school system stuff was here in the states. You then mean Israel, the Israelis Israel. sent the Israelis sent top notch people. The Israelis, over. yes, yeah. Israelis sent. Um, they they had a, a group called Israeli Aircraft Services that was a subsidiary of Israeli Aircraft Industry. And that services group provided all of the support for the Kafir program in the U.S. Um, so they sent instructors over that were ground school instructors. Then we went to Israel and we went to a, a place called Uvda in, in southern Israel, uh, flew out of a base that actually the U.S. built for the Israelis as part of the uh, Camp David Peace Accord. Uh, pretty interesting base. All of the uh, facilities were underground, squadron spaces. The aircraft were parked in revetments underground with netting over the top. When you taxied out, you taxied up a hill onto the taxiway. Yeah, so you would start up the airplane start in up a revetment. In a revetment, under, underground. Cool. And then taxi out. The, the runways were dyed brown to blend with the desert. There were almost no buildings on the facility that you wow. could see. Um, really interesting experience. My instructor pilot, we had three flights in a two-seat kafir. My instructor pilot was a guy named Yoram Geva. Yoram was an ace, and those are the guys they sent to teach us. They put really great effort into making sure that we didn't mess up their airplanes, I guess. <laughs> give, give, give people a bad opinion. Yeah. Be like, oh, I beat a kafir. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. We uh, we could talk about this later. We flew them a lot differently than the Israelis did, but they tried really hard to train us to fly it 
the way they wanted us to. So, okay, we can't talk about that later. We, we have to stop. Right? We have a so for our, all of our audience, we do have an outline of questions to get us started. We're just going to crumple that up and put that to the side. I want to okay. hear more about this. What um, we there's two circle flow. There's one circle okay. flow. We right. talk about right, right, right. The EM diagram. Right. There's only so many ways right. physics works. Right, right. What did you do differently? We did a lot of things differently. First of all, the Israelis flew that airplane. Um, in the ground attack role a lot. It did okay. some air defense stuff, but it also did a lot of air to ground stuff. Um, it's a fast airplane. It has one really good turn. It's a Delta wing. Um, it's uh, got about a 90 degree turn that's just eye-watering and then you're out of energy. Mm-hmm. So they fought that airplane in slashing attacks. They'd come through the fight, pitch out, come back through. It's really hard to see. Yeah. It's small. Um, so they kept the speed on the airplane. We're trying to teach guys to fight against a MiG-23. That was what it was simulating. And it was a really good simulator for that. But we're trying to teach them one circle, two circle, all of that. So we're engaged with the airplane and we're running out of airspeed day Mm. and night. And the Israelis hated that. Mm. In fact, um, <laughs> one of my one of my buddies was so uh, there with me, and and one of the things was a a, a a pitch up where they had us pitch out of a fight, pick the nose up, get slow, turn around, pitch back in. You okay. know, sort of a rudder turn, sort of a, a thing. Well, we were pretty comfortable doing that. They were not. The Israelis didn't like that maneuver. And my friend Chuck Turpin, uh, we called him Turpy did that and he just parked the airplane and did the most beautiful little pirouette turn and came back in and they were taping everything. So we watched each other's uh, flights afterward and critiqued each other and learned, trying to learn how to land it too. And um, so his instructor in the back seat says in this thick accent, he says, Terpy, one day this maneuver, it will kill you. Well, so now you see, you're saying that that's this is to to simulate the MiG twenty three, right? So it, that one big hard turn for a MiG twenty three yeah. that sounds familiar to me, but did it what, throughout the envelope? Obviously, there were some parts where it was not identical, right? Um, but the way you fought it, it was you were fighting it as an adversary to model the MiG twenty three, right. not to win. In the Six Day War, right? Which is a a different attitude. Exactly. So we were trying to model what the Soviets were doing at the time. And we're trying to teach F-14 guys how to see an airplane and identify its energy state by what it's done. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the nice thing about the Kefir was because it's all pointy and sleek, and because it's got a little fixed canard on the front and this big delta wing, with enough back trim, you could keep the nose up and kind of look intimidating. Mm. So even though you'd be out of energy, having turned with an F-14 and maybe kept up for a little while, you really were out of Schlitz. You had nothing yeah. left, but we could point. And the whole idea was to get the F-14 guy to go, he doesn't have anything left if he's doing that. To, to recognize, exactly. to recognize, hey, there's a difference between aspect and energy state. Exactly. And what's that next move? And what's exactly. 90, 180, 360 degrees from now? Right. What's two minutes from now? Right. So that, and we've talked about that bio before about the, uh, I think it was going all the way back to Slammer's discussion where we talked about uh, fighting the airplane and thinking ahead and making that assessment of your adversary right. 
of where they are in the diagram, how much their what's their energy state, both potential and kinetic, uh, as well as where they're pointing, <laughs> and being able to figure out what that next move is to take advantage of it. Right, and that's what you guys did. It wasn't to win fighting in a career. No. It was to set up the training scenario exactly. for the Tomcat pilots to know how to win in the future against the MiG-23. Although occasionally, if you got a guy that was a little <laughs> cocky, you might want to spank him if you could. So you're saying <laughs> so, mean, so you're saying if you got a Lieutenant JG that shows up in your office with a cup of yeah. coffee and says, What's this guy gonna teach me? I got wings. <laughs> exactly. you, you might you might you might pull out your A game for that guy, you're saying. I I will give you I'll give you a, a quick example. We did a we did a, a, a deal with a Marine uh, RF four squadron one time and they would occasionally come to Oceana and work with the adversaries. Prior to the Kafir, we had F5Fs and A4s. F5 is a pretty fast airplane, but these RF4s could really haul the mail. Those guys were fast, and they were used to using that as part of their survival technique. So they had this idea that they could run away from okay. a fight. I mean, if they got engaged and things weren't going well, they would disengage and run. Well, they couldn't run from the kafir. Mm. The kafir would run right up their butt, come up beside them, and you know, mm. kiss them off as you go by. And that took a while to teach those guys. So we would, when they'd try to pitch out of a fight and they didn't have the energy to do it, we'd re-engage them and say, "Look, guys, you can't run away from this fight. You need to position yourself to do right. that." So occasionally, See, you're trying to teach a lesson, but mainly you're trying to hone their tactics. And right? that was something that when the flogger came in, I remember. Because because crunch in the early days of the flogger, its high speed was just the incredible thing. And so what BB just said, the kafir proved that to guys because that's what they told us: you can't disengage from from a flogger. That's right. Okay, but I get I, your comments. Remind me of two stories. One is uh, is flying the airplane different than the Israelis did, and and both of these stories are related to uh, Brad Elward's recent book about Top Gun, the big thick great book. But he talks about Israeli pilots going to Top Gun. And flying the American Phantom so different than uh, U.S. Navy guys did. And the Navy guys were just, you know, amazed by what the way the Israelis flew it. But the other story about teaching a lesson. Uh, okay, I'm going to use one guy's call sign here, Pager. Do you guys know Pager? We don't need... Okay, he was a top... Pager was a top gun instructor in the, uh, in the uh, late 80s, I think, early 90s. But he talks about... And again, this story is in the book. He talks about taking an A-4 Skyhawk, a humble A-4 Skyhawk, up to Nellis and fighting the F-15 Fighter Weapons School. And he said he was in, and Pager's a very nice guy, but he's a, he's also a great fighter pilot. But he's, he said he was in the briefing with an F-15C pilot and instructor, you know, fighter weapons instructor. And the guy was just like, oh, A-4, big deal, blah, blah, blah. And he's just bad-mouthing the A-4. And Pager goes... Okay, he goes. I need to get this guy's attention, and so the way Pager wrote it up, he's because they called the A fours the dog, you know, and he goes, the dog bit hard that day. <laughs> <laughs> so he just showed the F fifteen guy that you know you got to respect this airplane, especially when there's a capable Top Gun instructor flying it. So, okay, my story. <laughs> um, so you know, I thought we were going to talk about. You flying A4s against the F-14, and now you bring out the Kafir thing. This is going to be really interesting, and uh, uh, so very interesting stuff. So did you notice 
any Tomcat squadrons that were like consistently better than other Tomcat squadrons as you're flying against the whole fleet? I mean, you know, maybe you didn't, but. Yeah, you know, I I think I can say there were, and it seemed to come from command focus. Now, back in that time, uh, when I was flying adversaries, we had not yet started air to ground work with the F-14 that came late in my career. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're working on, uh, on your intercepts, your radar work, you're working on, uh, you know, getting on board the ship, obviously. Um, and then your, your fighter tactics and some squadrons emphasized that piece of their training a lot more than others. And they'd come into FARP, the, the fleet fighter ACM readiness program that, that, was our part of our bailiwick, they would come in there a lot better prepared. Um, you know, that was a, a process where you worked them through from, you know, it very much like Top Gun was structured, 1v1s to 2Vs to to division stuff to multi-plane stuff across several weeks. And definitely squadrons would come in better prepared than others. Um, and it also kind of depended on when you got them in their turnaround cycle, too. How many oh, new yeah, guys they had, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, I'm dying to ask this question. Do you remember fighting against any of the high-profile Tomcat pilots that, that you know, the community remembers? And unfortunately, they're, they're, two of them are, are gone now. But sure. uh, guys like Snort sure. and Hoser, yeah. uh, were they magic in the Tomcat? Were they good? Or... What do you think? Um, yeah, they were at both. I, I flew with both. And Snort was at 43 just ahead of me. So he was leaving about the time I got there. Um, and Hoser was a rag instructor when I went through the first time, uh, the F-14. So I flew with them both. Hoser was great air to ground. That's where Hoser just excelled. When you went to, and started strafing, he'd show up in a plaid hunting shirt and, you know, take us down there and, and going to take us on the target. He wouldn't wear his mask in the pattern down there when we we're strafing. And you could hardly hear him growling because he's got his mask half unhooked while he's jerking the airplane around. But he could shoot that gun like nobody. Snort. Uh, I'll tell you a story about Snort. I was at 43 and we had... Uh, TA-4s, A-4 Echoes, A-4 Fox. We called it the Super Fox. Similar uh, aircraft to what Top Gun had during your time. And then the Kefir. And late in my tour, we got F-16Ns right at the very end of my time. Um, so I went out with Snort when the first F-14A plus at the time showed up before we designated at the B. Right. And the RAG got the airplane VF-101 at Oceana. And Snort and I went out to do a, a 1v1 a performance hop. It was very scripted. All these people sitting in the briefing room, we had these time to excel, time to turn, all of these things that we were supposed to do that were all scripted. We had our knee pads and we're supposed to, you know, ready, set, go, run the throttle up, do a time to excel, see what speed you're at, et cetera. So we go out and the plane had not been certified to do ACM yet. They and were you're, just You're both in A pluses at this point? No, he's in an A plus and I'm sorry, I'm in an A4 Super Fox, gotcha. A4 Fox. 
as an adversary guy. And we're just comparing that A4 and its performance to the new uh, Tomcat. So we go out and we run through the script um, of everything we're supposed to do. And they're all kind of a, a mile of beam setup, you know, accelerate, do a, a you know, left 90 or whatever we were doing. Well, we finish up the routine. Snort kicks himself out about a mile and turns in and goes, fight's on. <laughs> here we go. And I go, we're not, sp- oh, well, you know, and off we go. And we're full blown 1v1 out there in the tax range when uh, it was not yet authorized. But yeah, he flew a, he flew a really good airplane. A lot of what Snort did was um, when he was flying against other Tomcat guys is fake them out. You know, he'd, he'd come in, uh, he'd put his wings out. He'd, he'd do stuff to make it look like the plane was performing differently than it was. Um, he was a tricky guy and he flew the plane well. Yeah. So he would, he would give you a reason to believe the energy state was yeah. different. Yeah. Put so the wings out. Yeah. So that out wide, yeah. so that it looks like you're yeah. slow. When and then he, you know, boom. or more, more commonly, he liked to fight slow and, yeah. He would, you know, the flaps are down, which wasn't an authorized full landing flaps were down often in engagements with snort. Um, but he'd come in with the wings pinned back, but he'd be at corner speed. You know, he'd he'd be at 320 with the wings pinned back. And the minute you hit the merge, the wings are out, the flaps are down and he's got you fully engaged. And and it's it's all over really fast. So. <laughs> interesting yeah but so as now, he used to say if you're not cheating you're not trying that's right and he he cheated a lot but he did it well <laughs> awesome well so now um so those are the high profile guys those yeah. some of the guys who yeah. are just really they're they're crushing yeah. the program and then you have the rest of the rest right. of us you know right. the average jo who goes out there who's you know just a good solid fighter pilot, but then some of them were ahead of their peers. Sure. Some were a little behind. Um, is there anything that stood out to you as an adversary pilot where you said, wow, that blue fighter, that Tomcat guy, he just gets it a little bit quicker. It, it Was there any theme that you saw, if you will? Like, was, was it study habits, attitude, or just innate ability, or you have no I mean, it's yeah. possible it's nothing. I don't know the answer, but... I was always impressed with guys who, um, unlike me, did a lot of reading on fighter tactics. Mm. Guys that kind of understood it before they got in the room. Um, as part of the uh, the FARP program, we gave lectures, much like Top Gun does to the, the power projection classes. My lecture happened to be the 1v1. So we would talk, you know, we'd give a 1v1 lecture much mirrored on what what Top Gun did. There were guys that asked a lot of great questions in the classroom and they performed in the airplane because they were just more aware. The other thing that I noticed with F-14 crews in particular is a good crew. If, If that pilot and Rio were engaged as a crew and Mm -hmm. could keep sight and talk to each other, Mm. the fight went so much better. And it made a huge difference with that crew coordination. So you're saying the Rio could actually have a positive or negative impact on a 1v1 visual arena fight? Oh, absolutely. And certainly when it became multi-plane. 
But even in the, you know, in a 1v1, I've Rio's bailed me out time and again. You know, his nose is coming, his nose is coming, break. I mean, he's the one getting my eyes back on the guy that I've lost, or he's the one that's assessing the threat. Yeah. Or, or maybe keep in sight of your wingman who's exactly. over here engaged with somebody else exactly. and saying, hey, there's stuff going on here. You take yeah. this guy. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, this guy's nose is coming around. Here we go. Time and when break. you get – that was one of the beauties of the class that you taught, Bio, is when you took a F-14 crew through Top Gun and those same guys flew together every day doing ACM, you begin to click as a crew where it doesn't require conversation. You watch him. I've got him. Right. I mean, you, you start to get that stuff. Yeah. Made a difference. <clears throat> yep. Okay, so – Here's another question that I've been <laughs> that I was thinking ahead and I was dying to ask you. Oceana was at a great location. You were near uh, Langley, right? Did, did you ever fight F-15s? And, yes. Uh, and how did they do? What and what were you flying? I, especially in the, when you were an adversary. But you know, if you don't have that many adversaries, you can you can uh, switch into uh, your your Tomcat experience. We we did both, um, and I I did a. Uh, a debt to Eglin and an F-14 squadron to, to work with an F-15 squadron. So that was, you know, F-14 versus F-15. But we would work with the Langley F-15s occasionally as an adversary squadron out of Oceana. They, <laughs> you made me laugh with your story about the, uh, the fighter weapons guy in the A-4 because we had similar experiences they did not respect the A4 Super Fox in particular. If guys don't realize it, that airplane, although subsonic and low-tech, is hard to see. And at a, if I remember right, at half fuel weight, it was almost one-to-one. There was one-to-one thrust-to-weight ratio. That plane would fool you, and it was a great slow-fighting, um, flat scissors, rolling scissors, airplane and the eagles didn't respect that and they wanted to come in with their radar weapons you know shoot you in the face five times before you got engaged you're dead you're dead you're dead and then you get to the merge and they didn't respect the ability and that airplane could you know the a4 would turn inside of an eagle and really shock him and it happened over and over again they just didn't respect the airplane so it was a good lesson for him trying to do the mig 21 thing you know yeah, and that's why we train. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Now, so that's that's the Eagle guys. Yes. What about the Tomcat guys? They see the A four more often. Were they more respectful of the possibility Absolutely. that? So, so that actually, my greatest fear when I was a Tomcat guy, and I still remember one v one day at Top Gun when you're going through the power projection class. I kept hoping I'd get an F five. I'm like, please let it be an F five, <laughs> <laughs> and it was not. <laughs> um, I was scared of the slow fight capability of a good A4 driver because that airplane was just really tough if you got in the phone booth and you needed to extend out of it to to win that fight. So I think Tomcat guys, because they saw the A4, I think they were well-trained. And I don't know, do we talk about the types here or not? Do we talk about? Absolutely. Okay. So... When in real world you get to see that first MiG-21 and it performs very much like 
that A4 that you've been seeing from the adversary guys all these years. It's really or F5. May 21 would be the F5. Yeah. Um, when you first see that airplane in the real world, the first time I had emerged with a real MiG-21, and you're going, oh, my God. But then you get a couple of turns out of it. You go, okay, I know what that is. I've practiced this before. And it doesn't take long before it settles in. And and I think it was valuable to get those looks at something that looked so different. You, you know what I mean? Right. Um, that was part of the value of the kefir. Um, because it looked different, there was a startle factor that first couple times you saw it. Mm-hmm. Um just because it was out of the ordinary. Now, did you ever, uh, we've talked about the the grad 1v1 hop before. Uh, yeah. And just for our listeners and the people who are, yeah, that, yeah some folks have, have not heard it. So a real quick, quick rehab, the grad 1v1 is uh, in the Top Gun course. We invite other people to come to uh, Fallon now and you show up with your airplane and it can be whatever you're bringing. And it's anything from uh, F5s and T45s all the way up to F16s, F15s or whatever. Right. And what happens is everybody shows up in a, in the main room. There's a brief, there might be some skits, there might be some jabs, and then everybody gets an envelope. And in the envelope, you have a, a cap point, an altitude, a frequency, and a weapons loadout. And sometimes that weapons loadout is one bullet or uh, an AIM-9 or whatever the case is. And you don't know what you're going to see when you hit the merge. So you get out there, you go, hey, here's my envelope. I open it up and I know my cap point is here and here's my time at the merge and here's my altitude. And I'm going to fight whoever shows up, right? So that's the recap. We've all done that several times. Now, did you get an opportunity to go there as an adversary Yes. And do grad 1v1, Kefir, A4. Talk us through some of those engagements. So when when I did the um, the adversary Top Gun course, that's what yeah. you're referring to. Yeah. So I took a A4 Super Fox out there. And at the time, we did some training with the Top Gun staff, uh, teaching us how to be a good adversary. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was support. We were playing adversary along with the Top Gun staff. So we'd be the force multiplier in multiplanes and stuff like that. But we did do some um, 1v1 work, you know, my A4 versus a Top Gun A4. Um, and I still had a lot to learn at that point about flying that airplane. The, the guys that I was flying against at Top Gun were showing me some stuff about using the slats and trim and getting the plane over the top mm. slow and the various techniques. And also, you got to remember... You're trying to perform the airplane the best you can, but you're also trying to perform it within some parameters that simulate a real threat. Right. Back to your theme of you're not out there just trying to beat up on guys. You're trying to teach them a lesson about a threat they're going to see in the world. Right. Yeah. Right. So as an example for some of our listeners, when you're simulating a threat, uh, you're like, today I'm a MiG-21 or today I'm a MiG-23 or a MiG-29. And you know that, hey, I can simulate a MiG-21 and an F-14. I just know that my power is limited to 91% in this airspeed band. I can go to full blower when I put a turn on for 90 degrees. And then, I, you know, there is a there is a significant amount to learn to be a good quality adversary because you have to, for you to bring your A game doesn't mean just win. It That's means right. to simulate right. uh, simulate a threat. Right. Now, at the same time, so that's what you do when you go through the adversary right. course. You're like, hey, I'm here to simulate a threat. Yeah. I'm here a force multiplier. 
And at the grad one V one, you bring your a game looking to win, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so a slightly do. different mindset. Exactly. <laughs> when you hit the you have those opportunities. And then, uh, one of the things we did between coasts during that time, and maybe it continued later, but with VF-43 being the adversary squadron on the East Coast and VF-126 being the adversary squadron on the West Coast, um, they often deployed to Fallon with the, the uh, or to Yuma, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. with the air wing to do, I guess their FARPs maybe were part, partly held we, there. I'm not real oh sure. Yeah, we, we would uh, use, uh, they fl- they usually went to El Centro. El Centro, there you yeah, go. And then flew over the Yuma tax range for FARP. Right. right, Yuma tax range. So I had an opportunity to do an exchange where I took an A4 and did a West Coast FARP with oh, them that's cool. to see how they did it. Um, it happened to be that the CO of that squadron at the time was a very famous Navy ace. And uh, I got after some drinking one night before and some Mexican food, he and I got an opportunity to go out and do 1v1. In, uh, and he had an F5 and I had an A4 Super Fox. And that was fun because it was an opportunity for me to say I beat up on a on an ace <laughs> because we weren't playing adversaries. We were playing every <laughs> underhanded <laughs> trick we could play that particular day. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Um, okay. I was just going to, uh, to uh, ask about since we're, we've, you know, set the stage and everything, how was the, uh, the Tomcat in an engagement? Was it a, a capable uh, fighter or was it in over its head in the, in within visual range, you know, dogfight environment? Cause Crunch, if I say this every episode, you can call me on it. But one of my uh, things that I that I represent at every opportunity is people think the Tomcat was an interceptor. And I remind them it was designed as a power projection fighter, a multi-mission fighter. It had to be maneuverable, et cetera. So, BB, what did, you know, talk about the Tomcat in an engagement. Did did it have, was it, a, was it decent or was it, you know? I think well-flown, it kept up with just about anything. I will tell you that in my engagements against F-15s, if the fight was high, so if the F-15 was allowed to drag that fight uphill above the mid-20s, that it was really tough to keep up with an eagle. Mm. They their, their thrust away and their performance was good but if i could drag that fight down the the tomcat was was a really fearsome airplane uh against the eagle which was kind of the the best fighter at the time the f16 um was tough if you got it uh in tight and they liked to do that um the only thing that i could do with an f16 is i had no limiter on that F-14, I could stall that airplane, park it, zero airspeed, whatever I wanted to do. The uh, the F-16 had a limiter. So when you got into a slow fight, the nose would pitch down. The plane would do it whether mm. the pilot wanted to or not. So if you could park your airplane with an F-16, sometimes that limiter would punch his nose down and, and he'd fly out in front of you while you're hovering on the flaps, just hoping to get a shot. But all in all, um, I'd say I'm with you, Bio. The F-14 is a very capable fighter. Um, The downside, it's a big airplane. 
nobody loses sight of you. The yeah. Kefir, we disappeared. The F5, you flew a lot of time in the F5. How many engagements were lost by crews that lost sight of that F5? You know, it just. And you can tell when they lose sight. Oh, yeah. You know, you guys both know that. You can always tell because you can look out there and there's somebody and they're turning tight and turning tight. And then all of a sudden uh, they just ease yeah, up and you're like, he, go? he lost sight because he just stopped pulling, <laughs> which is absolutely the worst. Just pull in one direction. <laughs> I, will, I will tell you uh, another uh, a quick lost sight story. And it's not an F1. Go ahead. We're, you, we you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, Top Gun and going through the adversary course. So I've got my. A4 Super Fox out there, and we're doing sort of a grad 1v1. Uh, I, I don't know what, what you guys called it in the syllabus, but after spending a week or so doing a 1v1, we went out against another A4, and uh, we just did a 1v1. And I happened to come into the merge with the intent of doing this one-circle fight and rolled in and pulled really hard. And unfortunately, I, if people don't know, the uh, the A4 had slats that were mechanical, aerodynamic. Uh, they just they came down at the right angle of attack. And if those weren't trimmed properly, you'd get these slat departures where one slat would come out and the other one wouldn't. And the plane snap rolled. That airplane was capable of 720 degrees a second in the aileron roll anyway. So I come to this merge with the idea that I'm going to do this one circle fight with this Top Gun guy. And I got a slat departure and I went the opposite direction. I whipped my head around, but I went two circle and he wasn't anticipating it because I'd rolled as if a one circle fight. And he lost sight of me because the plane departed, not because I was wily. And I ended up winning that engagement just because... He lost sight of me and that was it. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So that uh, it's funny. So I think back to my, my A4 time was all TA4, right? right? It was the trainer, the two seat trainer. Yeah. It, but the, I remember the, the, I certainly didn't fly it to the edge of the envelope when I was a new guy, but you, I remember that those aerodynamic slats, you know, you'd be just doing a simple loop. You right. could go up and if you, right. And the, the, the jet would just, yeah. Flopped to one side and you had to keep the pull on right. so that the next side would go right. out. And it was always hard to actually keep a nice, simple, mm -hmm. straight up loop oh, sure. into yeah. like to yeah. stay on that road, if yeah. you will, of, yeah. of just going around because it was just a little bit difficult. Yeah. And uh, so a, a couple thoughts on that. I remember that uh, if you ever lost your airspeed in an A4, it was easy because on approach, you just went uh, gear down, flaps down, and you just slowed down until the slats came halfway out and you knew you were yeah, on speed to land, exactly. one. And then second, uh, the Blue Angels used to fly the A4. And to avoid that, yep. they, they, they they welded them up or locked them up. I don't they, know how they did it. Whatever they, they did, safety yeah. wire welding. I don't yeah. know. But they made it so that those things wouldn't come down. Right. Because they're like, and well, we don't need to be fighting the slow flight. <laughs> they don't need yeah. to be in a rolling scissors. They're just trying to make yeah. it look good. So right. an interesting well, thing with the A4 there. I think over the years, some adversary squadrons bolted up the slats. Did they? Oh, yeah, I've that. read that or heard about it. Um, yeah, I wasn't aware. But I can't provide any... <laughs> Any citation for that. So, okay. <laughs> so somebody who's watching or listening is going to come up with, uh, they'll, they'll be like, oh, I know the answer to that. And they'll help us out. So anybody who knows the answer, write it in the comments below. <laughs> so 
So bio, I think we had a couple of other questions here we were going to talk to Bob about, which is um, basically, were there any trick moves that you would do specifically for F-14 crews to trick them? I mean, you talked about like departing, yes. talked about sure. what what specific would, would you do? Specifically, what might you do to trick a wily F-14 crew yeah. who really knew what they're doing? The um, Both the Kafir and the A-4, if you were going to fight the airplane slow, you use trim a lot to help get the airplane over the top or to perform. So the Kafir, um, as I told you, very fast. Um, just to give you an example of, of speeds, um, it, you came into the break and you flew the approach turn at 220 knots and you flared to touch. Your touch was 170 and then you deployed a drag chute to land that airplane. That's if fast. Yeah, that's fast. So in comparison, Tomcat on speed was about 134, 135. Right. So you're touching on speed. The final was 220 approximately coming around the corner and then you'd slow. And if you had a nice touch, you'd touch about 170. So on a short runway, and what I mean by short is the 8,000 foot runway at Oceana was sporty if your chute didn't come out. I mean, it's a fast airplane, okay? It accelerates well, um, but it gets in an energy hole. Once the energy's bled off, it's really bad. So one of the things we would do is in the Kafir, come to the merge and match that F-14 in his first turn. I mean, just match him nose for nose. Well, the plane can't do that, really. It it looks really good for 90, 180 degrees. You're matching him, but you're out of Schlitz. You're just out of energy. And the F-14's still at corner speed. He's got the vertical available to him. Kafir has none of that. But what you could do because of the design of that airplane was you could hold the nose up and you'd trim, 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 get a lot of back trim in there and just keep the nose up as much as you could, a little above the horizon and just kind of point, just kind of rudder it and point. So you look threatening and the fighters, if they weren't using their heads, would ditch all their energy to pitch back in. You know, they go, ah, you know, and I had nothing. I couldn't shoot him with anything. I couldn't hurt him except just kind of threaten with the nose. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, look, buddy, if he's matching you, something's wrong with this picture. You've got superior performance. You've got the vertical. Use it. Don't get baited in. Right. So the lesson being fly your numbers, know your numbers. Exactly. Don't don't get don't go, oh my God, it's not working. It's, it's gonna work. And Just stick with and, it. And yeah, you stick with those numbers that you've learned. And the plane's not magic, you know? Right. If it's doing something that looks magical, something else has been given up. So we would do that. The A4, um, and you have a lot of experience with that as well, Bio, but when you're in a, say, a rolling or a flat scissors with the A4, again, very slow speeds, but using that trim, you can trim the nose over the top. We used flaps um, with that airplane as you did in the F5, and you've got a lot of time in the F5 as well, but to get the nose over the top. So again, very little airspeed on the airplane, but it looks threatening, right. you know, to so now when the nose comes through, you know, it dropped like lead. But again, you're trying to get the fighter to assess what's his energy, what has he done with his airplane, and if another guy's got angles on you, what did he do to get there? So, yeah, those are the kinds of things you would do. You may remember, Bio, from your 
speaking of that, you're brand new at Top Gun. The skipper went out. I was on that hop with him. Um, so to, to give your listeners a background, the uh, the end of the 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 first week you have your one v one graduation, and then there's a there was a two v two prep. You're going to go into two v twos the next week. So I went out on a hop with Vita Blue and uh, the skipper um, and my wingman from VF thirty one to do a two V two intercept. And then we were splitting into individual one V ones after this. So we did this two V two initial intercept turn. And then we split to separate one V ones. I went with Vita one part of the range. He was in an a four. The skipper was in an F five. He was in an engagement with an F 14 and got in an inverted pitch hang up with the flaps down as I remember and lost that airplane. Mm. And I still remember the tax range officer coming up to Vita and me and said, knock it off, knock it off. And Vita's like, okay, knock it off. Why are we knocking it off? And the range guy says, the skipper went down. And he goes, what do you go down for? And he goes, no, the <laughs> skipper went down. Your vector is, and we go over to this smoking hole on the side of a mountain. Skipper was okay. Mm. He came in the next day. It was a Friday that that happened. On Saturday morning, we came into class. He's got some bandages yeah. on his head and uh, yeah and he had a big bruise on his neck from a uh, parachute riser yep, yeah yep. i remember that very well because i was that, new that, and he was using that same technique that i'm talking about where you're intimidating with the nose you got it coming over you got the flaps down but it's not a great place for the airplane to be mm-hmm. yeah so yep. I, unlike a tomcat which is never going to hurt you on its back <laughs> that's right not all airplanes are that way right <laughs> that's right yeah Tomcat, you could just be like, "Hey, I'm on my back." As long as I'm not within seventy to 110 degrees of the, I don't know vertical, if right? You know, I don't know. I didn't ask if we're allowed to tell those stories, but anyway. Oh yeah, no, that's good. Um, BB, though, when you're talking like that, you sound like you're debriefing a flight. So, so you have not lost it. You know, I don't know. It's been a few years, but lot, uh, you yeah. sound like you're debriefing right now. So that's good. <laughs> hey, how did the uh, did the adversary mission change while you were uh, there? You were there for three years. I was there there for three years. Um, You know, it didn't change during that tour. However, uh, and and this is just going to be my political statement here. Later, I was at the fighter wing staff. Yeah, I was at the fighter wing staff as the OPSO. And during that tour, we lost our active duty adversaries. Um, And I was in the middle of that fight trying really hard and failed. As I had told you, we had uh, VF-43 East Coast and 126 on the West Coast. And then we had VFC-12, which was a reserve adversary squadron on the East Coast, VFC-13 reserve on the West Coast. And those, and I don't want to impugn anybody here because these guys almost all were Top Gun grads, almost all former adversary guys they just gotten out and were working at the airlines and they put in a lot of time as adversary guys. Oh yeah. But they did a lot of the work with the rag. For example, the F 43 did more fleet stuff with a little bit of rag training and the reserve guys did a lot of rag training and a little bit of fleet stuff. And then down in Key West, there was VA 45 and they did some adversary work and uh, a lot of fleet services. Now, the F-18 came along and we started modifying FARP 
to an SFARP to work with their capabilities that, you know, that the Tomcat didn't have when the Hornet came online. But I thought it was a really sad day when the Navy, for financial reasons, said we're decommissioning the active reserve full time. I got to say, Bio, you you had a great job. You had a great job. Being an adversary guy was as good as it gets. You flew not at night, not in bad (laughs) weather, ACM two or three times a day. That was your lifeblood. That's what you did. And you were never a better fighter pilot than the end of your adversary time. Having watched innumerable guys fight and either succeed or make mistakes, you got to the point that you could almost tell what a guy was going to do in the first turn because you just saw it so many times, particularly rag students. Rag students were just a joy because you could sit in the brief and say, look, in this first engagement, we're going to do a two circle and this is what you're going to do. Don't do that. You know, and the guy would be, oh, no, not me. And then sure enough, you know, it just it was natural until you learned it and saw it. So the role didn't change a lot other than adapting to SFARP. And then later, the reserve stepped up big time and VFC 12, VFC 13. Uh, really took on that adversary role and did it well. But I think we had a loss when the Navy got rid of those squadrons. So that's my soapbox. Yeah, and I, I know that uh, in in recent history, you know, the um, a lot of the adversary role is not necessarily even in the visual arena that we're looking for. We're, we have moved on even further where um, – you know, it's it's about electronic attack. It's about right. providing virtual uh, simulation. I'm like, we're Ooh, doing all yeah. that virtual inject stuff, uh, which is crazy advanced yeah. and really really cool. Uh, but things I don't things I don't yeah. know about. To be very clear, I don't know any of this stuff. But uh, but we have moved even so that it's not even just uh, you know spending all these hours and hours in the dogfight. It's even stepping back and going, yeah. how are we going to support this four VX? to simulate a brand X uh, conflict with this country or that country or this threat. How are we going to simulate that? And a lot of times things like an A4 just can't do it. Sure. Right. Uh, Or a Learjet with a pod is perhaps great at 50 miles, but inside of 20, it's not. And so we have different needs these days. Sure. I don't even know where the Navy's going with it other than they need to have a lot of money in order to do it. It's Navy and Air Force, everybody together. And I, I don't even know. Uh, somebody smarter than me knows what's going we on did, in the future. We but. did get a few roles that were outside of the the ACM, not many. But one that I remember in particular, we did a, a fleet services. We were we were simulating missile attacks on ships. And you we took a bunch of kafirs out. And they said, as low as you want to go, as fast as you want to go, here's your target. And oh, they man. gave us some points to start. Out, out over the water here, and you just went and attacked ships. So you're just flying as low and as fast as you could make that thing go and seeing if they could engage you, multiple targets. It was fun. Okay, so give us some numbers. How low <laughs> and how fast? Well, I've got – so I was uh, – separate event. I was on the tax range. Uh, I, I guess your listeners know what the tax range is, but – um, instrumented range, the, the Kafir carried a pod like all the other adversary airplanes. This particular flight happened to be a post-maintenance check flight. We'd done an engine change, and I had the tax range to use. And part of this post-maintenance check flight 
was a dash. It was a high speed dash and you did it at 40,000 feet. That was the, the run. And then you pulled the power back and popped the nose up and you were looking at this pressurization deal to make sure, which is, seems like stupid to me, but I'm at, you know, Mach <laughs> two plus in this particular case over Mach two pull the power to idle, pick the nose up and see if the pressurization holds. That's basically what you're doing. And as I'm going through 50,000 feet, I'm going, this is stupid. Okay. So I know exactly, <laughs> but that didn't come, uh, that, didn't work. <laughs> that didn't come to me until, you know, so, but that day on the range, um, it was in excess of Mach 2.2. The plane's, Plane scooting. I mean, an F-14 could get there, but oh, oh, yeah, really could get there. <laughs> Man, that's impressive. Yeah, I never got to Mach 2.2 in an F-14. I've never been that fast. That's uh, mine is it's, like 1.8 or so. Yeah, it, yeah, it mine's really, like 1.65 or something. Or yeah, it 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 really was fun. And down low, you know, obviously your performance is a little less, but that's a now the problem is you had no gas. Um, we flew them clean most of the time, sometimes with one centerline tank. Here's a here's a quick story. We're probably uh, out of time for stories, but we take the planes to Fallon to work with the air wing and work with the West Coast guys uh, because they didn't get to see Kafirs very often. So it was a big deal. We'd take debts out to Fallon, work with the West Coast air wings. To get the Kafir to Fallon required two refuel stops. We put three drop tanks on the airplane, which oh, made God. it an absolute hog of an airplane. It, the The logistics of it, U.S. personnel were not allowed to service the airplane. The contract we had with Israel, Israel Aircraft Services had to do everything. So we would have an airlift that would go to Tinker and meet us when we arrived, and they would fuel Repack Air Force Base, Oklahoma City. And yeah. And then we'd go to Albuquerque. There'd be a second airlift to Albuquerque. We'd fly into there, fuel, pack the chutes, and then make it to Fallon. One time I was going out to Fallon. We took off out of Albuquerque. If you're familiar with Albuquerque, there's a mountain range nearby. We have four Kafirs take off together, join up with three big drop tanks on them. And I still remember a boomer stuffle beam uh, was the flight lead. And we're turning out and the, the departure controller s- says to our flight, you know, turn right, climb and maintain. And the flight lead comes up and says, we can turn or we can climb, but we can't do both. (laughs) (laughs) Turn right, (laughs) because we could not take those four airplanes at that weight. It just was a dog with all those tanks. It's a tiny airplane. Amazing. Big drop tanks on it. Here's another, just a, a quick aside that you might find interesting. It didn't have a fuel gauge like you're used to. So... What it had was a picture of the airplane and it had a debit meter. So when they fueled it, they would tell you how many liters of fuel you had and they would dial it in. Your plane captain dialed in how much fuel you had. Okay. Not from a gauge, but from what 
he knew because the tanks were full. And then you had one feed indicator. And I don't remember now, 1,400 liters might have been the number on that. So the, that meter, if it started clicking down, you're out of gas. But the debit meter would click down and then there were lights for each of your tanks. You know, your center tank, your wing tank, your drop tanks, there were six lights. And what you would do is the debit meter would count down and say you got down to 2,000 the one light should be on and then the tank's empty and you're, everything's calculating. And then it burns down some more and another light comes on. And you go, yeah, that's 1800. That's about right. And you just were keeping track by this debit meter, really an odd system and a little bit uncomfortable in an engagement sometimes. I bet. Yeah. Oh, I God. guess if you get used to it, you think it, about just in a, in a normal, in a normal day, you got the fuel ladder and you're sitting there, you got your bingo bug and the F-14 with this unreliable yeah. fuel gauge. And, yeah. and, and I thought that was stressful. Yeah. I can only imagine where you're like, I don't know. feels like about half. <laughs> <laughs> it's about how it was. You had to trust the guy that fueled the airplane. Man. And, you know, if the numbers accountant, if, if lights start coming on before the numbers get to the right thing, then you're going, okay, I don't know how much I've got. It's time to yeah. get this yeah. airplane on the ground. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Odd. Maybe we'll have some Mirage or Kafir pilots come on and comment and go, hey, it worked for me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't remember reaching? right at all. <laughs> well, we, so the indigenous Kafirs had a fuel gauge. This is the export model. We don't allow you to have a fuel gauge. <laughs> well, I was told, and this, this again may, may be folklore, but I don't think so. Part of the deal about having Kafirs was the F-5s that we flew, we were Fatigue life was an issue. The F-5 was not designed to dogfight every day like Top Gun and the adversary squadrons used it. Same thing happened to our F-16s right. later, later in life. But the, the F-5s were so broken that they were expensive to maintain. And, and John Lehman was the secretary of the Navy, and they worked out a deal with Israel to supply us these airplanes. They were Israeli airplanes on loan on lease to the U.S. And we had to contract for the maintenance. And I was told that it was the highest dollar per flight hour airplane in our inventory. It was part of an aid package to Israel, if you will. So we got the adversary airplane. We got some great support and training, but we paid mightily for it. So... Anyway, that's another political statement I probably shouldn't make. Yeah, that's for the State Department. <laughs> that's good. Oh, Crunch, I think we've uh, covered the subject. I mean, this was, as I said before, this was an unexpected, I didn't even think of the Kafir, so this was an unexpected uh, pleasure. Awesome. Good. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we had it. Well, it yeah, absolutely. I had a, I had a whole... I had a great time. This is the first time that we've had something where we've been in person, which I really like. Oh yeah! Just despite the technical challenges of, uh, you know, figuring out the one mic versus two mics versus the feedback, and as anybody watching YouTube can tell, we're sharing a microphone because the sound quality is just going to be that much better. So hopefully everybody enjoys this show. But that said, I really appreciate you coming over today. Thanks, this is, uh, you know. Uh, Absolutely a pleasure. I think we had a great conversation. I think our listeners are going to love it. And uh, if anybody has a question, throw them in the comments and uh, we'll make sure that uh, BB Bio or I get a chance to get in there and we'll see, do our best to answer what you, what you got. So Bio, you got anything before we go? 
Nope. Thanks. Uh, nothing else. Thanks for hanging out with us uh, this morning, BB. And for our listeners, thanks for uh, following the F-14 TomCast. Check in two more weeks and we'll have another episode for you. Adios. Hey, Bio, I tell you what, that was a great interview. I had so much fun talking with BB. He and I have known each other for a long time, as you have, and we have had a lot of conversations, talked about a lot of stuff. We have never talked about some of that. So that was a whole lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I hope our listeners did too, and I really hope you come back. In two weeks, we're going to be talking with two of the guys who were instrumental, vital to the production of the original Top Gun movie. So you know what comes out in two weeks? Top Gun Maverick, the sequel to Top Gun, is coming out. And we had the opportunity to sit down with the guys who were instrumental in the very first one. So stay tuned. We're looking forward to it. You've been listening to the F-14 TomCast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at F14TomCast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, visit BVRPro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.